Hi, and welcome to Things of Interest. I'm Sophia Friends. And I'm Serena Chen. And this week we have a very special episode because we have an incredibly talented and experienced guest. Um, with us today we have Erica Chan. Uh, she describes herself as a level 15 book lover, level 3 technology lawyer, and level 3 science fiction and fantasy writer. So when she's not at work geeking out about AI and the Internet of Things, she writes, and she writes rather quite good science fiction fantasy, um, both short stories and novellas, uh, and poetry as well. They've been published in magazines such as Starline and Grievous Angel, which I think are both Australian, Erica? Um, I think Starline might be the US and okay. um, Grievous Angel may be the UK. I should probably get better at publishing at home, to be honest. It's something that I haven't thought about before. That's fine. Um, I know like Australia has some very good homegrown magazines, so like not to drag you at all, that's fab that you're publishing overseas. Yeah. Um, her other published works include Division, uh, a collection of science fiction fairy tales, and Dissolution, which is a dystopian novella, and they're both fab. I actually have both of them, and despite the fact that I've met like Erica multiple times in person I've never actually managed to take her books with me to get them signed um, but I'm sure we'll get to that at some point <laughs> I'm sure we will thank you um, so that's like a really exciting set of experiences do you want to talk any more to like how you got into science fiction writing and actually being published because that's really exciting thank you absolutely and and it's it's really funny hearing um such a glowing introduction because I'm sure I'm part of the many echelons of people who hear those sorts of things and they're like, gee whiz, are they talking about somebody else? That doesn't sound like me. Um, and I know as well, I'm in the August company of a number of other writers like yourself as well, Sophia. Thank you. I guess all I can do is sort of speak to what I've done, I suppose. And I guess it's actually really funny how I got into science fiction because I grew up very much wanting to escape into fiction, which meant I read a lot of fantasy. I think I've forgotten who said it, but they mentioned that you don't escape into science fiction so much as science fiction lets you escape into reality, which mm. I've always found really interesting. So it was actually a bit of a shock to me when I started writing more of my own things, particularly as an adult, and I realised that a lot of the stuff I wanted to write was science fiction. And I think it's because that... Um, if you sort of look at stories at a really reductionist level, right, everyone always says, you know, stories, stories about problem solving. Like, you know, whatever story that you have, it's ultimately about somebody who wants something, something's gotten in their way, and the story is about how they solve that problem or how they don't solve that problem and how everything turns terrible. And I think that if you look at storytelling in that sort of reductionist way, then what science fiction does is gives you this incredible tool set um, it gives you the ability to, to, you know, examine stories from a really, you know, minute human to human sense in a really small world or in a, in a really, um, in a really limited technological setting, or it lets you span, you know, literally space. Um, it gives you a huge arena to play in. It lets you sort of do a lot of things with, I think, what a lot of fiction writers do want to do in the end, which is, you know, look at humanity in a really interesting way, test ideas, ask what if, um, and it gives such a fantastic playing field for that and so I think that's how I got into it I, I, I like to play God um, and I like to ask I like to ask questions I like to you know get really worried about some of the stuff that we see in today's world I also like to sort of challenge the there's been you know a bit of a pushback I think one of the first you know um, classic science fiction stories that people always talk about is Frankenstein of course mm. And a lot of that is about the fear of technology and about the fear of science and, and the fear of what happens if, you know, humans get their grasp on technology and, and the sort of arrogance of playing God. And, and I think I really enjoy science fiction there as well, because we get to explore. There's a lot of that innate tension, but also there's a lot of really hopeful stories about how amazing technology can be. How about personally, I think. And one of the things that I really enjoy exploring in science fiction is that it's not the science or the technology itself that is dangerous. It's the humans who are wielding it. And so there's a lot of really, I think, cool stuff to explore in science fiction. That's uh, how I got into it. That was a very long answer to a short question, sorry. No, that's great. Is it sort of informed by your work on a daily basis? Because I don't know very much at all about your daily work, but it sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah, I'm really, really lucky. I work with an incredible law firm, um, and one of the things that I guess I sort of feel really privileged to do, I, I sort of did fall into being a lawyer, I was one of those people 
who people were like, well, you know, you can write and you like arguing, you should go do law <laughs> if you get the marks. And I was like, I don't know what else to do with my life, so I guess I better go do that. So, But I think what really interested me was I sort of just fell into it accidentally. I did a cyber law course at um, Monash University, where, which was fascinating. My favourite thing about that was that I remember we walked into the lecture and um, the lecturer was, you know, uh, an, an older man, um, possibly past his 50s. And I remember everyone sort of thinking, oh, gosh, you know, what is this guy going to teach us about cyber law? And the very first thing he said was, I know what you're all thinking. <laughs> and I would like to remind you that our generation created the Internet. And we're like, OK, OK, really good point. Um, and I think what he taught me and what was fascinating was I think what I really enjoyed was about how I suppose the, the intricacies of technology and how certain things work and even in terms of a, of a network and when a message is sort of said to be received and all that sort of stuff has a lot of implications in how today people work out things in contracts, which essentially, despite all the legalese, is a bunch of people trying to get together and use technology to make their companies better. So I think I'm pretty privileged to be able to work on stuff where um, we're starting to see you know, blockchain contracts come in, people are testing out the Internet of Things. Um, people are talking a lot more about automation and AI, and it's yeah. Like I, I'm, I'm afraid I was never good enough to be a scientist, um, in the sense that I probably don't have the patience. So I'm glad I can sort of do something a little bit on the side. That is so freaking awesome. Oh, I think we need all of us though, right? Like mm. it's can't we wouldn't be able to do any of this without the actual people creating the technology, and then you know I just get to be really excited and geek out at the end and try to <laughs> get companies who are tr- who, who are thinking about trying out this this Internet of Things business mm-hmm. um, to see if it's it's really interesting actually. I think um, the sort of and sorry if this gets into the more corporate-y, like lawyer type side of it, but a lot of a lot of um, what I've realised at least in in this area is that a lot of law is about trying to um, you know reduce risk for people mm. trying big new things like technology and, and technology does carry a lot of risk in it a lot of it's expensive um, and a lot of it is just you know it's it's a completely um, different world for a lot of these you know big old companies who don't really know much about innovation or who you know they're used to sort of working in, in, a, in a very different way mm. so it's it's really a lot of a lot of the job is actually just trying to help people manage and identify what they're worried about when they implement these things um, and to make sure things just don't, you know, come falling down around their ears when things go wrong. When you work in law and technology, like how do you how do you future proof the work that you do to at a reasonable point? Because technology moves so fast, like the meanings for things change so quickly and the nature of an entire platform could change in like a year or two. How do you try and go about future proofing mm, it's a really good question and i think um it's it's something that you're absolutely right people struggle with because as you said um people could contract for a particular product or a platform and you know in in a few months it's completely different or it's gone um and i guess the answer to that question is that we try to make it as technology agnostic as possible while also recognizing i guess this sort of unique risks that technology brings and what i've found fascinating working in in this area was that i never realized until I got into this that a lot of technology contracts and the way that um, companies try to work with technology is actually built upon construction contracts. So, you know, literally the same risks that people see with pouring a lot of money into building a hospital, into getting all of these people together to construct, you know, this massive thing and making sure all the safety um, procedures and all that sort of stuff and everything's sort of regulatory compliant. It's actually not that dissimilar to, you know, building a big platform of like, um, you know, and making sure that everything is um, security compliant and all that sort of stuff and all of the different sort of like states of programming and it and and that's what I found really interesting that's sort of like an old way of um, handling it but that's sort of what people have tried to do Hmm. Um, they've tried to you know manage their risk in a really similar way because a lot of these technology projects are really massive that's really nerdy of me I guess but I always find that really (laughs) interesting that I think there's a lot of old ideas that can still sort of apply but what's really interesting is I guess looking forward and seeing how one day I think because it takes a long day, it takes a long time to sort of write those sorts of things. Mm. Um, and as you said yourselves, technology changes so fast. Like it's gonna, it's it's gonna be. I think that people just take on more and more risk, and they do that thing where everyone loves to say it's like you know they fail fast and they they fail better and they keep learning. And we're gonna have to you know write stuff that makes sense to sort of help people do that. I think um an area where that's sort of been very obvious. I think to a lot of people currently, it's very much on the forefront of everyone's minds is surrounding things like privacy in the sense yeah. that like there, 
isn't policy really to deal with privacy surrounding things like the cloud and for example my health record yes (laughs) oh my gosh and that's like definitely a failing but no one is really dealing with that I feel appropriately and like to a large extent that's kind of where that Silicon Valley approach of fail fast fail better falls down because when you're dealing with people's health and sensitive information like you can't just fail like that's no exactly yeah well it's really it's really funny one of the things that my the partner that I work with loves to say and I definitely agree is that when people say fail fast they don't actually mean fail for me. Like they're like, you know, fail fast <laughs> on other things, but for me, you better do it right. Um, and I think that's really true. And I think it's like, yeah, the, the privacy and security stuff that's coming in now is I think people are starting to, to grapple with this stuff and, you know, law being what it is, it's particularly the regulatory side of it. It's pretty slow moving, but at the same time, you know, we're starting to see, I don't know if you guys know about the uh, general data protection regulation. Yeah, yeah GDPR in Europe. So that's that's been really, really interesting to see roll in, particularly because it's so broad and so wide ranging. Mm-hmm. And I remember one of the fascinating things, we, we did a we did a small presentation on it to a bunch of lawyers and one of them was like, that fine is bigger than if a company had flat out murdered somebody. <laughs> and I was like and it was it was such a horrifying realization, but at the same time, I guess it sort of it sort of shows that you know at least um, in Europe and a couple of other countries, I, I guess people are really seeing how important it is. And I know that Australia, you know, even though we do lag behind a lot of these things sometimes, they are talking about, funnily enough, despite the my health records thing, they're talking about introducing more legislation that gives us more rights as to privacy and data. So I think. It's one of those things that I found really fascinating. I'm sure you guys would have seen it too since you're interested in this area. A couple of years ago, there were a lot of people like, I think people have always been aware that data and privacy is an issue, but people just didn't care about it. Mm-hmm. That People were always saying things like, well, you know, people will always give up privacy for convenience because people just want things to be easy and people don't people think that you know their, their data is not that valuable or they think that you know that you know they're not that interesting. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and that old idea of if I'm doing nothing wrong, then, you know, it's fine. And what I guess we've really seen, right, is exactly how powerful this data can be um, and exactly how frightening this this data can be with things like Cambridge Analytica. And I think that's sort of, it's really interesting. I think that's what's, um, I'm I'm really glad actually that more people, (laughs) I I guess, it's sort of really trickled down to, I think the general perspective now seems to be, yes, we agree privacy and data security is an important thing. Yeah, I think the the really eye-opening thing for the public in the past few years around data privacy and security is that we've witnessed just how powerful data can be in aggregate. Yes. Because for so long, we've always been, you know, in general, we've always been kind of okay with the idea that we can give up our data as long as it's anonymize as long as you know our name isn't attached to it as long as whatever like we can consent to these things as individuals but I think as you know as we evolve and as we live with these technologies for longer you kind of understand that it doesn't matter if your name is on it or not because just your location data or your browsing data or anything can be used to de-anonymize you because the yeah. fidelity of that data and the quantity of that data is is so huge. And it's like we get to a point, and I think it was um, Zainab Tufiki, which is a she's a journalist, fantastic um, reporting, does fantastic reporting on privacy and security issues. Um, and she was once talking about the fact that we live in a world where we can't reasonably consent to privacy issues on an individual basis because we can't conceptually understand what that data is going to do in aggregate. So we can't consent to these things individually anymore. That's why it's really encouraging to see things like the GDPR and I think New Zealand also had a hearing for a privacy bill change a couple of months ago. So it's very interesting coming from a background in genetics to these discussions about privacy, because essentially there's the first issue where genomes cannot be fully anonymized. Mm. So we refer to them as being de-identified because they're still your genome. And if someone just like, if any of your like relatives have put their genomes up online, that relationship can be determined. There was an excellent paper by Jan of Ehrlich a few years ago where they found like likely hometowns and last names of people from supposedly completely anonymized yeah. genomic data. 
but also in the way that we deal with that is like there's static legislation that refers to policies because like there's sort of this understanding particularly in medical health that like when you look at things so um if you're looking at something like um, in vitro fertilization and um, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis and embryo selection, like we're finding new genes for diseases like often mm. and those boundaries might need to change like within the span of a month, which legislation just cannot do. <laughs> no, exactly. So legislation like always in the case of like these issues like refers down to policies, which like, you know, a bunch of scientists can get together and be like, so it turns out CRISPR can like edit human genomes and we probably shouldn't allow that. (laughs) (laughs) And then just put it in policy and be like, solved. (laughs) Um, So to have these like huge waiting games essentially over like privacy legislation itself changing rather than, you know, a policy that is referred to within the legislation, just responding dynamically to it, I find really weird. It is. Yeah. Is there any like way for dynamic response surrounding things like privacy law? Gosh, I wish I could say yes. Um, <laughs> I, I'm unfortunately, yeah, I'm pretty cynical about that, unfortunately, because um, I think it's it's been this really interesting thing from what I've seen, at least, is that I think everyone knows that this old way of doing it, as you said, where we have to wait years for people to draft up this big, massive thing and then, you know, they all need to vote it through and approve it. Like, it just, it's too long for this, these sorts of developments. And so, yes, the, the you know, what, what they attempt to do is, is sort of make policies, but then policies can also be blow by blow or, like, you know, people aren't necessarily aware of them or all that sort of stuff. And then on the other hand, what I'm sort of seeing is that, all right, everyone's sort of being like, okay, okay, fine, this way doesn't work. What we're going to do is we're going to turn to industry. So industry, you guys better come up with some standards that you guys can amend really quickly that you can all agree on. As you said, your your proverbial bunch of scientists in a room or policymakers getting together and trying to come up with all these standards that everybody agrees on. And then you get these other issues of, you know, standards, different standards cropping up all over the world. And But then there's also that other tension where the industry could also be saying, well, you know, actually this is a global thing and governments should be doing it. Or So I think it's, it's really interesting. I wish I could say that there was one clear way of doing it. I want to give you some sort of, you know, half-ass answer. I'm sorry, because but I think it is true <laughs> that it's going to be one of those things where I think that everybody is going to have to, we can't do the old way anymore. It, it doesn't work for this. It, the only thing it might be able to do is provide a framework for people to solve these issues more quickly and make sure that it works. But we're also going to have to get, I think, cooperation. It, it's, it can't just be one thing anymore. We used to do that thing where, you know, we turned to governments, we turned to kings like way back to sort of set these things and we can't do that anymore. Um, we also, I don't think, can let industry go off and do it themselves. We also can't We can't let academia go off and do it themselves simply because I have a bad feeling that nobody would, like a lot of people won't listen. Um, so it has to be like a sort of a joint effort from everyone to get together and be like, guys, this is serious. We need to solve it and, and sort of figure out some sort of way to do that together. I think it just can't be something from, from one side. Mm. Sorry, that's not a very satisfying answer, I'm afraid. It's a good answer. It, it's a true answer, yeah. which yeah. is better than satisfying. <laughs> yeah. But like back to the point, I think, about you guys talking about data. Please stop me if you've heard this story before, but the story that I always turn to for how powerful data can be, even um, you know, in the aggregate, is is the story of, of Target in two thousand and six. Do you guys know it? Yeah, yeah, the um, teenage girl. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Uh, I'm, I'll quickly recap. It's essentially, um, I think, back in two thousand and six, Target were looking um, to try to capture a new market, or obviously, you know, businesses are always looking to 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 find new people to to market to. And they realised that um, after doing some some data analysis and crunching on on, on aggregated data, that um, one of the key points I wanted to get to was um, when people started families, because people often change where they shop once they start a family, and then they'll be really you know, committed to it because like, they want convenience and all that sort of stuff. So they realized it would be really great if they could figure out when people were pregnant. So from that, they ran you know, a lot of data analysis, and they realized that often people, I think, in their first or second trimester would start buying non-scented um, you know, hand creams and like all of these sorts of different things, and they could reliably figure out with a pretty good sense of just by people's buying habits with their credit card, you know, when people were going to be uh, were expecting. And so the story back in 2006 was that, you know, this man called up Target, outraged me, like, I can't believe you sent my daughter, like, you know, like this, all of these like deals for like pregnancy and babies, like it was outrageous. And they're like, sorry, sorry, we, you know, we didn't know that's fine. Oh, crap, maybe our algorithm was wrong. Um, and then they, re- and then like, I think the guy rang back a week later being, oh, sorry, uh, she has told me she's indeed pregnant. And it was one of those things where it's like, yes, I guess perhaps you might not be at a currently. Um, my computer's not smart enough to realize that 
even though I'm married, I have no interest in children right now. So they assume that because I'm a woman at a certain age, I like to see lots of baby ads, right? So on the other hand, it's, it's, it's really funny to laugh at these things. But sort of pulling back at a picture, when you have that sort of aggregate data, I mean, humans, I think, I wouldn't say we're predictable creatures, we're predictable in our unpredictability. But there's definitely, you know, huge patterns in the way that we'll act in particular situations, which there's a lot of research, um, obviously, in behavioral economics that's sort of showing that. And when you have all of this aggregate data, even if it is de-identified, we're essentially putting the map of how people will work and how people will react into the hands of companies. And that's that's really, that's a really, I wouldn't say, okay, no, it's frightening. Let's just be honest, it's frightening to have that data collected by anybody and understood by anybody, um, I think we're sort of going to have to, whatever the privacy and security debate is going to be, we're going to have to live in a world where um, how we work as humans is going to be better understood. It's not just, not even just understanding the genome of our biology, it's understanding the genome of our mind and how we'll, how we'll react. And they'll have a pretty good chance of telling how we'll act. And I think that's going to be a really interesting world to live in. Yeah, here's an um, even scarier story of data aggregation. I think this was maybe sometime this year, guessing. So you know people wear like Fitbits and people wear mm. exercise trackers yeah. and stuff? Yeah, so I think there was this one brand of exercise tracker that, you know, tracks your location so you can like see where you run and that kind of thing. And it's all anonymized data, mm. um, no names attached. But then when you look at the heat map of everyone using one of these things, they revealed secret military bases used by the U US military, which is just an incredibly scary and real example of how dangerous aggregate data can be if you just don't think about it. And people don't Absolutely. think about these things. Yeah. That's right. Although I think, you know, definitely people are starting to think about them more, but it's there's also stuff that we wouldn't be able to foresee, right? Yeah. As you said, like, um, it's one of those things where looking back on it, that's really obvious to us now, but I can sort of imagine those poor data engineers um, in that product thing, you know, they wouldn't they wouldn't have thought about that at all. And yeah, I think the world is just going to, we're just going to keep getting more of these sorts of stories of, of data breaches and, and everything that's that, that happens to them. And people are going to get smarter about, you know, attacking data and valuable data yeah. there's like there's a big line right now in the corporate world where everyone's like saying you know actually you might think that your company is a you know a, a construction company or you might think that your company is like you know a retail company but if you're making money through the use of technology hmm. part of you is a technology company absolutely um, and that means that all of a sudden all of these companies are technology companies that means that to them data is such a huge becomes this huge corporate asset and that means that obviously, um, as we all know, like in terms of as we all know in terms of cybersecurity, everyone's going to be targeting that asset. And it's actually been really interesting. Sorry, on a side note, I was working with a client who was attempting to sort of fight back against fraud. I think there's a lot of uh, like pe people who can target and essentially steal identities from stealing data. And some it's the same legislation that's trying to protect privacy is actually too inflexible to uh, to to allow ah. um, them to, to them to implement <laughs> this technology solution. So it's like oh, it's like little things like that, yeah. yeah. Because they, of course they wouldn't have been thinking about these things. And and it's this really funny thing where you know they were still collecting consents and they were still doing all of this stuff. But because there were like a couple of different parties involved, um, this other legislation sort of came in and applied. And they they couldn't they couldn't say with a hundred percent certainty that they wouldn't be breaking the law if they implemented this, despite the fact that it was implemented to protect people who'd said, yes, we, we, do, do, we do want to be protected. And so, yeah, sorry, that's just a side interesting note. It's definitely agreed that legislation still has a long way to catch up to these things. Yeah, I think, I mean, especially with private companies, since the dawn of the internet, everyone has been saying data is the oil of the 21st century. Data is, you know, all this, this huge asset. Data is power. And I think, I hope that we're moving away from the whole data is profit, data is money mentality mm. and towards a data is liability. I want to see companies and a lot of like how you protect your company from a data breach is basically just to not hold customer data so what would be really cool and i would really like to see new tech companies doing is viewing data as a liability not as a resource and just not storing customer data that would be great that would be yeah. really really interesting i actually haven't come across that before the idea that actually you know what we can we can relieve ourselves of all of these problems as long as we don't store customer data absolutely we just need to get out of that mindset that data is profit essentially like we are in a world where the entire internet, 
the biggest companies, Amazon, Google, they run off of data. They run off of selling you ads, and that's what everyone kind of understands data to be now, is if you have data, you can sell ads. If you have data, you can sell data. And it's just this kind of strange mindset that's a I think is very limited to our time and our age and hopefully we turn to different and more sustainable and just like nicer business models around internet companies. <laughs> That's really interesting you say that actually because um I'm I'm really torn, right? Like mm. so on the one hand I am, you know, I, I'm a science fiction writer. I, I do love to, and, and, and a lawyer as well, by the way, which means that I almost always, um, whenever I look at a problem, I see the worst thing that could happen. It's um, <laughs> not particularly mentally healthy, but it's true. And I do, and I was genuine when I said before, like, it, it's it's scary to me that mm. um, we, we could be building, like, this this map of how humans will interact. But at the same time, I can really understand that it's an incredibly valuable thing. Mm. And the cynical side of me says that companies will never give up stuff that is giving them a profit. But the scientific part of me says, well, I don't think they should. And the reason I say that is because I think all great inventions have often come across with the empirical method, right? Like people mm -hmm. try something, they get a response on whether or not that worked, they try something else, and they, they slowly, slowly accumulate that data and that knowledge. And I think that at the core of it, whether or not it's right or wrong, that's what these companies are doing. What they're trying to do is that they're, they're, like they're in a business of you know trying to trying to sell something so they're going to try something they're going to see if that works then they're going to go back and they're going to you know rejig they're going and then they're going to try again now slowly slowly build up that knowledge and, and, and all that sort of stuff and i think that on the one hand yes that, that knowledge is dangerous and yes it is a liability and yes it can be misused but on the other hand i i'm i'm really cautious about this idea that we just shouldn't in that case we shouldn't gain that knowledge at all because I think it could be used for really good things. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I really wish, actually. And actually, you know what, Serena, I still think your point applies. There are some companies that absolutely shouldn't be jumping on the data bandwagon just because they want to. Um, but on the other hand, um, I think that in some certain cases, yes, I'm, I'm worried about it, but I think it is actually some powerful knowledge. And I guess I, I don't – part of me sort of wants to wants to hope that it'll, it could be used for good as well. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I used to teach part of a bioethics course, and one of the conversations I always had with the students was like, they would often say things like, but surely pharmaceutical companies are in it for the public good. <laughs> and I'd have to be like, <laughs> oh, no, my children, yeah. my children. No, it's a profit incentive. And just this idea that, like, a profit incentive can exist alongside, like, objectively good things coming out of it, like, Pfizer likes to make money, but that still means that they make medications that help people, right? Absolutely. But I think it's it's a really interesting thing. So I, I'm still sort of shocked that I'm I, I'm a corporate lawyer. Um, I was a pretty <laughs> I was I was a pretty uh, you know like radical youth. I think the one thing that sort of made me realise this, and it's a lot of what I ended up exploring in 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 my novella Dis Dissolution, is that when I, I walked into my corporations law course. I had an incredible professor who had both been part of, and I won't name names, but he'd been part of like the most heinous corporation um, that, that that everybody, like, you know, you'd hear the name and you'd know immediately. Okay, just, just terrible, right? Just really, really <laughs> terrible. Um, and then he'd spent the next, you know, 20 years in, a, in, 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 in an organisation helping, you know, really good like, it was really, really good. It was, like, for the public good, it was government-aligned, it was all that sort of stuff. And he was really cynical, very interesting, but he essentially sort of stood down and was like, look, companies are, at the end of the day, a group of people working towards a goal. And when he said it that way, I guess I realised that it's really easy, and I've, sort of, and I've sort of made that mistake myself in my wording earlier in this podcast when I talk about companies, it's really easy to sort of say, well, you know, the company... Is, is aimed at this. This company is a monolith, but actually it's not. And I think I've been really lucky that I've gotten to work with all of these people and realise that a company is made up of all these individual people and most of them are nice. Mm. So yeah. I think what's actually the problem is, is when we talk about companies and, and this profit incentive, it's, it's actually not that dissimilar to when we talk about governments and the different structures of governments and how, um, unfortunately, like the way that often a lot of them are structured aren't particularly conducive to the public good. And mm. I think that's the same with companies. And I think that's why the rise of all of these really interesting social entrepreneurship companies that are using the structure of a company to just drive themselves towards social good, where profit is not the main incentive, um, I found that really interesting. And I think that the, the conversation in my head becomes less about, okay, yes, like, you know, it's true that 
the majority of companies, particularly powerful companies, profit-seeking. That means that generally they're not out for the public good. I agree with that. It then becomes a conversation shift where we're like, okay, how do we make that better? And how do we make all of these really powerful powerful things that, that are real and we have to deal with them? How are we going to shape their cultures so that they are more inclined and, and, and towards the public good? Because I think harnessing that would be really powerful. This is a great conversation. I'm having... <laughs> really enjoy this. <laughs> I knew you would. Oh, I'm so happy. <laughs> Sorry, not really science fiction related, but sort of, I guess. Um, no, no, it's good. I mean, we got you on here to talk about like, you know, your stuff, right? Like, and this is all your stuff. One of the big things that uh, Dissolution actually reminded me a lot of was Jennifer Government, if you've ever read that. No, I can't say I have. I'm curious now. I need to read it. <laughs> it's quite good, actually. Um, It's sort of, again, about how like corporations sort of own people definitely a lot more cynical than dissolution is and just sort of a very interesting similarity and like this idea that like you know hyper capitalism as a way of envisioning a future world i find quite interesting because like while i can definitely see the seeds of where this concern comes from i genuinely don't think that like we're on a road to like we'll have to be sponsored by a corporation to exist Having said that, though, like, that's basically what jobs are, so who knows? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah. <So bright>. <laughs> yeah. <it's, laughs> I think it's one of those things where I um, definitely would love to read that and I can't, can't wait to see a different view of it. One of the things that I've really noticed in dystopian fiction is that I, I, I feel like, you know, a lot of there is, I think there's some dystopian fiction out there that does try to be like, look, you know, this is actually what the world will be like. But I think a lot of it is actually just trying to explore certain ideas, trying to be a warning, yes, but also trying to trying to magnify current issues in an environment that's just different enough from us that we can feel comfortable not flinching away from it. Mm. Which I guess, sorry, um, to, to leap, one of the other things that I wanted to comment on, um, I guess, about why I love dystopia is that I think it's really interesting in how, um, and, and I think in the rise of dystopia around these days, I think that it's it's a really interesting way of exploring minorities because mm. I feel like and I only realized this when um, I really love the Hunger Games and I remember um, I, I just remember I think it's like you know, it's really powerful there's a lot of diversity in there like there's a really strong story in there I think and I remember hearing these people talking about it these mothers and they were scandalized they were like oh my gosh I can't let my child read that it's so bloody it's so violent it's so terrible what an awful story and all I remember thinking in my head was like it's not a story like for some people there are a lot of people in this world who were yeah. forced into becoming child soldiers dystopias often replicate stuff that's going on right now in our world it's just because i guess we're lucky enough to live in a developed country that they seem so foreign to us and that's why i've always found it really interesting a lot of dystopian fiction explores what it's like from the perspective of somebody who's powerless against you know a big society and i think actually that that mimics a lot of um, you know a lot of the experiences of minorities, um, and so that story about um, you know about being powerless, about trying to find you know ways to to topple this, about carving out your own space, about all that sort of stuff. I think it's uh, personally I, I sort of see this link between dystopian rising, uh, dy the the popularity of dystopias rising right now, and and minority movements rising now. That's such a that's such an interesting connection. I also find it really interesting just because I think, and, and this is me possibly going too far, I think it's 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 one of those things where I wish, you know, when somebody says it's like, oh, but, you know, what's it like to be a woman or what's it like to be queer or what's it like to, you know, be a person of colour? And you could point to them and be like, you know, you know that story there where mm. you feel like everybody has to live in one rigid way or else the government's going to swoop down or somebody's going to kill you? That's exactly what it's like. <laughs> um, and I think yes. it's just like another metaphor, I suppose, for people to use. I, I, I just wonder. I wonder whether it's it's one of those things where because people are feeling a little bit more palace right now, but also feeling empowered because mm -hmm. you know we're we're having better networks. These these issues are coming more to light. People are finally having to acknowledge it. I think I, I personally think um, that dystopian fiction sort of reflects that. I wouldn't say part of me would love to be idealistic and be like yes you know this is because all of these stories are showing us that there's a way forward i don't necessarily know if that's true but i think it is giving some people hope you know, something i really um have always appreciated about your fiction erica is like how gay it is <laughs> thank you <laughs> it's often gay and like this is something like i know that we've had conversations before about like i find like science fiction and dystopian fiction where the protagonist is 
white male straights that is just like it feels like very lazy writing to me because like when you're writing about like a fictional world there's a huge variety of like identities and genders that can exist like and this is something that um and Lecky and Ursula Le Guin both do very well is that when they're writing you know alien races or dystopian future or whatever right like they explore gender and they don't make that the focus of the story mm-hmm. and it's something like intersex people exist now non-binary people exist now it's not like an incredible leap to be like what if they were in a story <laughs> that's right <laughs> that's right and yeah like it's just it's one of those things that i certainly noticed too in terms of like i think the power of fiction i i actually to my shame i suppose i actually remember i was actually a bit in tears when i watched um mad max of all things the recent one because oh. i felt like i'd seen just even just a woman on screen who was not yeah. a love interest, who was super tough, but also he was allowed to be vulnerable, who was an actual character and was allowed to be triumphant at the end. That just struck home with me in such a raw level that I'd seen something I hadn't really seen before in a big screen. And it, the sort of same thing happens when I read um, amazing fiction, when I see like, you know, people of color, when I see all of these people like getting represented, when you see like, and it's, and it's one of those things that we need to work on, right? Like, I think I'm glad that there's definitely more depictions of of gay and lesbian, but there's not that many of intersex, for example, um, or of all of these yeah. other things. And I'm, I'm sort of glad that people are sort of becoming, I think, better at realising, as you said, they should be in stories and people should be able to recognise themselves and it's a really powerful thing. Yeah. Have you two seen the uh, sequel to The Incredibles, The Incredibles 2? Yes. 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 And the short yes. story, at the, um, the short film at the start of it. Oh, my yeah. God. I cried so cried much. so much. Oh, my God. And... So I went to see it with my sister and my friend who's also Chinese New Zealander. And we were just like sitting in a row, just like tears streaming down our face. Like we had never seen something like that on the big screen ever. I know, right? Yes. It's just one of those things where it's like you didn't know you needed it until you saw it and realized that never existed before. I didn't even think about the fact that I hadn't seen that kind of story before. Until I did, yes. and then it was like, oh, shit. Yes, yes. And it's it's one of those things that um, I remember, actually, I heard about it. And, and to be honest, I do, I, I loved The Incredibles, so I was going to probably watch it anyway. Oh, but so the main good. reason I watched it, the main reason I watched it in the cinemas was because I wanted to watch Bao. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's one of those things that I'm really glad at as well, I guess, from a, an Asian-Australian perspective, that that story got told. I, apparently it almost didn't get told. Oh. Um, and there's a, some, some really interesting backstories to how that one got chosen as well. But the more of these sort of stories that there are, I think, the better that it'll be. That seems to need to just be like a self-fulfilling thing. Yeah. Even freaking Wonder Woman, like that that <laughs> yeah. flyover scene of the Mysore right at the start where you just see an island full of women doing yes. everything. Like they're, they're fighting, they're training, they're tending to children, they're... They're doing literally just just being human beings. And That's right. I found myself like crying in the cinema just at the image of like a woman who are allowed to be a full, complete human. And it was so strange. It was so strange because it was not like a very emotional scene at all. It was like a like a scene setting kind of thing, like, oh, here we have the island of Thimasura. This is what it looks like. Here are some people. There was no emotional beat that the movie was trying to hit, and yet I was sitting there, tears down my face. Like I didn't know, I didn't know I needed this until I saw it. That's right. For me, it feels like there's this big hole for a lot of us, right? Like we've spent yeah. years loving this sort of stuff. That is, you know, yes, the protagonist is is white and male, and and we sort of we just sort of we we took ourselves and we sort of you know we molded ourselves to fit that because we wanted to enjoy mm. the story and we wanted to feel that, and then to finally be presented with something that fits us. We don't have to work for it. We don't have to, you know, like it, it recognizes that we exist. I think it is really powerful. And I'm sort of glad I'm, I'm not the only one who's, who's like teared up in the cinema um, because, yeah, it's, it's really powerful. And I'm, and I'm pretty glad I'm alive to see this. Yeah. Have you seen um, that? I think it's, it's a video on Twitter of these guys standing in front of the Black Panther th- theatrical poster. And this guy is just yelling at the camera like, is this what you white people feel like all the time? <laughs> all the time? <laughs> to see yourself represented like this all the time? I would love this country too. <laughs> like, I know, right? It's incredible. 
But you know what's really interesting, right? And so, and this this now comes into the more of the politics thing, I suppose. What's really mm-hmm. interesting to me is the backlash that we've seen against these sorts of things, because mm. obviously, like psychologically, it's much harder to lose something that you didn't realize that you had. I think mm. that it like the the loss of something that you have seems to trigger this incredibly powerful emotional response that's almost the same as the incredibly powerful emotional response that we have being seen and and like gosh I hope we uh, survive the backlash is all I can say yeah and it's it's kind of hard to reason with that kind of visceral emotional response of like essentially the mainstream straight white dude character losing their monopoly on representation that's right it's it's because you can't reason with it right it's emotional you can't and 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 it's one of those things that I have to be like really careful with myself because I'm all about the rationality and the reasoning and the why don't you understand it's like a very yeah. valid argument a very strong argument but you can't do that because it's not it's not something to be argued about it's it's just an mm. emotional response and i think we're going to have to develop other stories and other ways being of being able to manage that emotional response but at the same time i sort of see it the hopeful side of me sort of sees this as a the growing pain that we need to have to yeah. to sort of achieve a world where these sto- like stories can represent all of us and i read given that all of us do exist on this world you know, it's one of those really interesting things where one of the things I also love about science fiction is when you meet aliens um, and you meet all these different things, you think, gosh, you know, to them, we would look all the same. They wouldn't be able to tell if we were mm-hmm. really. They Or they wouldn't even understand the real distinguishment between races, between like, my gosh, why do they why do they discriminate against each other on the basis of their skin color? How ridiculous. Like it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's those things that really touch into, I guess, like the common humanity. I recently read Terra Nullius by um, Claire Coleman, which basically explores, like, exactly that, where, like, the aliens are just, like, they used to be mean to each other because they had <laughs> different skin tones, but they all look weird to us. Exactly. So, like, whatever. It's so funny. It's one of those things where you can imagine, you know, humans looking on and being like, ha, huh, what a barbaric alien race. Like, you know, they judge each yeah. other based upon what color their ship is painted. Like, you know, it's, yeah, it's really, really interesting. And I think it's, it's a, one of like science fiction and fantasy. I do have to say, I do still love fantasy and I still write it. I feel like they're still the best ones to explore these things because if we explore it too close to home, mm. I feel like too many people look away. It's, yeah. It is a really confronting thing, but when you put some metaphor over it and you, you use these tools and use your imagination, like, it's, it's one of those things where I hope that it does make people realise a little bit more and become more comfortable, the idea. Yeah, like, I feel like um, technology is a really good way to start exploring these ideas as well. Like, something I really want to see, like, from virtual reality is storytelling of people with disabilities. Yes. Because I think that's, like, that's such a good... I mean, okay, first of all, when you're playing a virtual reality game, you often get motion sick. Yeah. What if you're sitting down and in a wheelchair? solved like so first of all very good game design in my opinion (laughs) but also just like the fact that like you would be able to essentially you know see yourself as someone else like physically and how that would help you to engage with stories or understand like the way people engage with those things as well right like and it frustrates me that it's not there yet but I also recognize that like virtual reality particularly is not a mainstream way of engaging in media yet and I think as it gets there like that would be a much more optimal time to start developing those games and showing stories about people in wheelchairs about people with Mm. disabilities about people with various like different body types and abilities and skin colors and experiences because like I cannot think of a better way to empathize with people particularly if you're like a white male or someone who is cis and has just like never really got the trans experience to like physically appear to be in that body absolutely and to sort of see the results of that yeah no that is one of the things that i'm so excited about virtual reality and i think there are some people trying to do i've forgotten who it was there's some there's a charity that's attempted to um create a, a vr experience where i think it puts you in the shoes um of a of a child in a disadvantaged country and I think the little things like that, like, as you said, I think the biggest problem with a lot of all of these prejudices, all of these discriminations, all of this stuff is that massive empathy gap. Um, and the problem that happens when people who have lived in a certain world for all their lives with certain rules that apply to them and certain skill sets look at somebody who's living in a completely different world with completely different tools and judges them. be like, well, why can't they, you know, do this? Mm. Or like, you know, why you got and then but having i mean the experience of vr is so immersive like i i agree like it's one of those things that i i'm very very hopeful for 
Um, and also for people to experiment, right? Like even even putting aside how radical and awesome VR technology is in terms of putting up the um, immersion into one 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 step further. I remember when I was younger and and playing games, and like it it helped me to experiment. What would it be like to role play as a guy? What would it be like to role play as somebody who wasn't what I was? I remember I really enjoyed role playing as a white male noble. Like, because my God, everything was on easy mode, right? Like, yeah. I was like, holy shit, I didn't realize things could be so amazing. Like, and, and versus, you know, game, like there's a, um, a particular game, I think, um, called uh, Dragon Age, where you get to, yeah, you get to choose, you can play as this, you know, a male human noble, you can play as like, you know, a, a disenfranchised like city elf, and the game will, will slightly adjust itself depending on which background you choose and all of that sort of stuff. I think it really, it's a really, really powerful thing. And, and when, when VR becomes more mainstream, I think that's going to be really, really powerful too. Yeah, absolutely. God, I just, I have so many feelings about games. And now I'm just thinking about Dragon Age. I always play the introduction <laughs> as a female city elf because then I get to beat up a rapist. <laughs> like, it's just kind of like, mm, yes, I would like to destroy him. Yes. Thank you. Yes, I agree. That was that was my first origin as well, and it, I found it really hard to move past that. Although it was really interesting to me to like, yes, like the they're all they're all pretty brutal the origins in different ways. But then the 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 sort of the results that you get from them and the and and the way that everybody reacts to you is was just very true to life. I felt like you could really tell when you were playing yeah. you were playing it off everybody like you know hating you. And I I hope I really hope that somewhere some white guy decided to play an elf because you know elves are cool. And then might have gotten a taste of what it's like. And doesn't at all understand the metaphor behind it <laughs> and the fact that, you know, elves were originally written to be like, oh, God, what was it? Like, dwarves are meant to be, like, weirdly Jewish in a way a lot of the time because of like their obsession with gold god I don't get it I hate it all of this like we can't write about race properly but elves of pointy ears and a weird and live in a forest that's fine yeah, that's right I think one of my one of my favorite sort of experiences of like race and gender within a video game was like I pretty much always if I have to select a gender I will always play as female in video games because I'm just like female representation is so important <laughs> oh absolutely I agree and often I want to be a lesbian. So, Fair enough. Um, but that moment, like, partway through Morrowind, where, like, you're trying to get, like, someone to endorse you, and they're like, oh, a member of this council is, like, a feminist and hates men, but she'll vote for you because you're a lady. And I'm just like, she is my new best friend. <laughs> I'm going to hang out with her all the time. I love her. <laughs> like, That's right. It's like, yes, finally, positive discrimination for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah um and uh, moving back to written fiction as well i know that it, the metaphor does pass over a lot of people and but you know there's part of me that says actually you know sometimes it doesn't right like i i, I remember reading uh, some online fiction which i really enjoy because then you can read the comments which i know they always say never read the comment section and it's, it's often true but in some cases it's really interesting and, and i was really gratified to see that it was actually a fan fiction this story um, that was really long and really complex. And somebody had actually written, I used to think that homosexuality was, you know, against God and all that sort of stuff. But reading your story, I realized that they're just people. And I was like, yes, yes. Like, I'm glad that a piece best. of fiction. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, there must, like, so on the one hand, yes, there are people, you know, who I hope will learn. But then on the other hand, and this is a journey that I've had to take with my own writing. It's part of the reason I've now ditched my pseudonym and I'm going to go under my own name. Part of me also, yes! yeah, thank you, yeah. Um, but part of me also realizes, you know what? Those stories don't have to be for those people. They don't have to be for the people who need to change their minds. They can actually also just be for the people who want to see themselves and and get that power for themselves. Like screw, like those mm. other people have a lot of stuff catering for them. But it's actually, I think it's okay, and I think it's a powerful thing to be like, you know what? Actually, I'm not out to change anyone's minds. I'm out to, you know, remind these people who are already struggling that they're not alone and that they're represented. Can I ask, because um, we recently had a an episode about pseudonyms and oh, your yes. one came yeah. up, how did you come up with it? How did you decide on that pseudonym? Yeah, so early days of internet, right? Everyone's always like, don't reveal your true identity. Yeah. So everyone had those those pen names. And I, I remember I actually really enjoyed the anonymity and I signed up to lots of different forums under different names. And one of them was Shadowhawk, which was um, just like a name of one of my characters from an absolutely god-awful fantasy series, and I'm very glad I never finished. And I, I sort of ended up writing under that in my wild fanfiction days. And then I was looking for a, um, a gender-ambiguous name. Mm. And Lee came up because, you know, it can be, it's, it can be used for both men and women, 
But also it really appealed to me because it, it, it for me it seemed like a nod to my Asian heritage mm-hmm. without necessarily being too obvious about it. Um, so that's why I went with that. And I still really like the name. Yeah. But it, I also realised after a while, like, hell, I'm a little bit egotistical. I like to say my own name and things. It also, I also made me realise, actually, that's sort of similar to that realisation I had before that I mentioned. It's like, well, I actually go out deliberately these days and I try to read more from people who are people of colour, who are, who are women, who, who are queer. So I don't necessarily want to get lost in that, in that stream. I want, I want people to be able to recognise and be like, yes, there is somebody who, you know, is Asian, who is female, who, you know, understands these things. It's a little bit hard to tell people that I'm bi in a name, but um, at least to, <laughs> to understand that I'm not necessarily the, the same, you know, old, like white male and that I will write slightly different stories. So that's why I decided to do it in the end. That's fantastic. I'm so happy. Like, <laughs> I respect your choice to, like, use a pseudonym and I understand where it comes from, but I'm so happy that you're ditching it and I can just be like, read all this person's books. I love them. Because, <laughs> like, I've always sort of had to be like, oh, I really like sort of reading science fiction from, you know, non-straight male authors. Like, you know, Asimov's Robots Trilogy is one of my favourite, like, gritty oh, science yeah. fiction dramas in space. But, like, you know, you want to get behind Anne Leckie. You want to get behind yeah. um, Octavia Butler. Yes, yes. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, and Leah's Hawke, who is actually an Asian woman. Please read her books. Like, <laughs> just go. Just go. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I guess, as I said, I think I often struggle with there's a part of me that's a massive pragmatist and there's another part of me that's a shocking idealist. And so the pragmatist side of me won at the start and then I think I slowly realised, well, actually... I'm, I think I'm just looking at the wrong market. I, I feel like I'm better served at least where I am, maybe in just writing more stories where people can feel like they're represented. And if that's the case, I probably want to flag that to them. So mm-hmm. yeah, thank you. I'm, glad, I'm yeah. glad to hear that. Hi, it's me, Sophia from the future. Well, the future of the rest of this episode. We recorded for over two hours with Erica, which speaks pretty well to the quality of her as a guest, but it does mean I have to do this readout alone. So for this episode, you've been listening to me, Sophia France, Serena Chen, and Erica Chan. Me and Serena are the usual hosts of Things of Interest, and Erica has been a fantastic guest. As you've heard, she's a lawyer, a science fiction writer, and just very good at chatting. We had an excellent time with her, as you can probably tell from the length of time we recorded. As usual, you can find us on thingsofinterest.com. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts. We're working on getting onto Spotify. You can email us, castinginterest at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter under Casting Interest and Facebook under Things of Interest. If you like this episode, leave us a review, either on Apple Podcasts, you can send us a message if you've got any ideas for future episodes, either through Facebook or the Gmail. Both work pretty great. Stay interesting and stay tuned for the second half of this episode.